Welcome back to Institutionalized, a podcast about American institutions and why they've gone crazy. I'm Aaron Sabarium, a reporter at the Washington Free Beacon. And I'm Charles Fain Lehman, a fellow Manhattan Institute contributing editor of City Journal. And Charles, how are you doing today? Well, we sort of had like a like a like a family-wide meltdown yesterday. Simultaneously, my kids my kids sick for a change, you know, very exciting. Simultaneously, my kid was throwing up. The washing machine overflowed onto the floor. My wife became convinced. My wife's credit card got stolen. And my wife became convinced that the, the hot water heater was going to explode. This is all over okay. five hours. So we've had a we 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 had an exciting we had an exciting 24 hours in the Lehman household. It was that so, sounds um, pretty horrible. You know, it happens. It was like it, it all got resolved. My kids better, hopefully. The hot water heater didn't explode. They installed a fancy new unit. Okay. Yeah. It's 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 one of those things where like, you know, things break slowly and then all at once. This is why I'm thankful I'm not a homeowner because with when you when you own the home, you have to pay for things that all fail in sequence because they're all installed at the same time. Mm-hmm. But you know, it's 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 a little bit it's a little bit like it's a little bit like our national fiscal situation. Wow. That was a Amazingly graceful segue, Charles. Thank you. Thank you. I learned. I'm impressed. I learned. I learned the best. I'm impressed. Indeed. Indeed. So, Charles, because you know marginally more about politics than I do, what what are we going to be talking about one today? Of these, one of these days, we can like we gonna like you know give you a policy boot camp, where you, so you can no longer be like I don't know anything about this issue. You were you were you don't know anything. It's not that hard. That's all straightforward. No. What are we talking this week? We're talking about the the debt and the politics of the debt and deficit. Which is sort of a you know it's 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 an institutional issue, but it's uh it's it's an issue that it touches on really everything else that the government does. How do we how do we pay for the things that we do? Do we have to pay for the things that we do? Integral question, long-standing question, American politics, one that looms over basically every other debate. Obviously, this is sort of most approximately relevant given the threat of an upcoming fight over the debt ceiling, which we expect to see in Congress in the next few months. But I think it's, you know, it's 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 also a longer term fight. To what extent should we have a debt ceiling? To what extent should we be concerned about debt and deficit politics? To what extent should we be willing to use the the debt ceiling as as a as a political tool? And then more broadly, how should we think about the presence of about the debt in the 21st century global superpower? What what are the what are the things we should be concerned about in the short run, long run? How worried should we really be? It's a very it's a very cherry topic. Aaron, what are what are what are your thoughts on this topic? Yeah. So what? What a lot of there's a lot of things about it that are potentially interesting. The the thing I'm most interested in, and as a kind of policy neophyte, the most equipped to talk about is not the ins and outs of actual debt ceiling politics or or, or the economic effects of debt, but rather the kind of intergenerational justice issues that I think the debate gets at. Right. Fundamentally, debt is the the worst effects of debt are paid usually by future generations, not current ones. A big part of why we have debt problems is because of entitlements that are predominantly for old people, like Social Security. So you have this dynamic in which young people and effectively future generations of old people are propping up today's current old people and may suffer the consequences further down the line. And of course, the issue is how do you how do you reform that system without screwing over the current generation of old people who themselves have, I think, a legitimate claim to a certain degree of government largesse. So I think it's an interesting 
it's not just an economic question, but to me, it's ultimately a distributive justice question, albeit conceptualized along kind of temporal rather than rich poor lines. That's how I think about this. But beyond that, I have no real concrete policy answers. Charles, what are, what are your basic takes? Yeah, I mean, you know, look, uh, for me, this is a troubling question because I think about sort of social policy broadly construed, obviously criminal justice policy, but drug policy, which is health policy, and then sort of a whole swath of other related issues where indeed the, indeed the, the, the general tendency in the space, even among conservatives, is to say a solution to this problem is spending more. And so, you know, I think, I think for me, the, the debt and deficit dispute is always sort of a backdrop to what can we actually, as, as, as someone who's more sympathetic to not the power of government per se, but the use of policy in certain targeted ways to improve the function of our society, that's always sort of the counterbalance concern is really, you know, just from a concrete spending perspective, how do we pay for this? And to what extent do we need to worry about how, how we pay for this? Given that I think that there are plausibly good things that you can do with government dollars, even if a lot of things you do with government dollars are bad. Um, so, you know, I you, you you have sort of big picture concerns. I have very practical concerns, which are like, how do I need to be thinking about the pay-fors when I say we should be spending – I have a paper that will come out eventually, which I say we should spend about $12 billion more on policing in the United States on the criminal justice system at large. The question is, you know, how, how, how should I think about how we should be paying for that? A great guy to get into all this with is our guest. My colleague, Brian Riedel, is a senior fellow from Manhattan Institute, where he focuses on budget, tax, and economic policy. Previously, he worked for six years as chief economist, Senator Rob Portman, and as staff director of the Senate Finance Subcommittee on Fiscal Responsibility and Economic Growth. He also served as a director of budget and spending policy for Mark Rubio's presidential campaign and was the lead architect of the 10-year deficit reduction plan for Mitt Romney's presidential campaign. Brian, welcome to Institutionalized. Thank you, Charles and Aaron. I'm honored. So we like to start with sort of a provocative question. I alluded previously to sort of the looming debt and deficit, the, the looming debt ceiling fight where the threat is always like the government will shut down. You've written about why fellow conservatives should not be using this threat. So let me let me just ask you, like, what? why not just shut it down? Why not go fully ahead? What is there to lose? Well, I think first off, I sympathize with conservatives because the bait, the the eight biggest deficit reduction laws we've had since 1985, all eight were attached to debt limit hikes. This used to be bipartisan. In the 80s and 90s, both parties would come together and say, yes, pay the bills we already owe, but let's fix the underlying problem. And so I, I sympathize. And I think we should have both parties come to the table and, and attach a deficit reduction deal. What I'm against is, is taking the debt limit hostage and threatening default. If we don't raise the debt limit, you immediately have to balance the budget. You, have, you can't borrow any more money. And so you have to balance the budget, which means you have to wipe out one fifth of the entire federal government overnight. If, say, we want to protect the highest priorities, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, interest on the debt, which is perhaps the most important from a macroeconomic standpoint, as well as defense and veterans and interest, that's 75% of the budget, which means you got to wipe out pretty much everything else if you hit the debt limit. It's just, it's a hostage you can't shoot. And I think if we hit the debt limit, we go overboard, the full, especially, especially if we can't make the interest payments, full faith and credit falls apart. Bank balance sheets fall apart because they use government bonds almost as cash and collateral. 
interest rates soar, you might actually even get a recession. On top of it, you're not just defaulting on government programs, or sorry, on, on, on these you know high priority programs. You have millions of businesses that do business with the federal government. They sell goods and services to Washington. These are mm-hmm. medical providers who see Medicare and Medicaid patients. These are small businesses that sell office supplies, defense contractors, construction companies that build roads. Are we going to default on all of these companies? That's fraud. You're like literally saying like, we've already bought goods and services. We're not going to pay you. We're going to start bankrupting companies. So I think ultimately it's the hostage you just can't shoot. And I think even politically, the more conservatives talk about default, the more they scare the hell out of voters. And no one's talking about why the deficit needs to be addressed, which is what we need to be talking about. So let me, right. let me let me push back on that just very briefly. Play the play the devil's advocate. I'm, I'm sympathetic to the argument. I want us to go off the other side. Here are two who are, here are two counter arguments. Counter argument one is well, but like we've shut down the government before, and none of these horrible things actually came to pass at the scale that you're alluding to. So why should we think it's going to happen this time? And then counter argument two is, but for shutting down the government, why do we? What what else will draw attention to the issue of debt reduction? Right? It seems like only sure. a crisis will actually get people to understand that this is a crisis. Well, on the first question, this is different from a normal government shutdown. We have normal government shutdowns when you don't pass the appropriations bills on time. That only shuts down about 10% of the federal government, only temporarily. That's just some of the discretionary spending will will, will stop. Hitting the debt limit is different than, than a regular government shutdown. Hitting the debt limit means plausibly defaulting on the debt itself. It means much more drastic cuts across the board for the entire government. So it, it just we we haven't done that before. We've had we've had government shutdowns for a couple of days. We have not had a debt limit default of, of consequence, I believe, since the 1860s. In terms of what else will get people's attention, that's what that's frankly the question that keeps me up at night. I don't it, like I said, this used to get people's attention. The debt limit used to bring Congress to the table. I I worry that we're probably going to need a financial crisis before people can finally feel the deficit and its consequences enough to actually do something about it. And at that point, it's a lot more painful. That being said, I don't think hitting the debt limit is an alternative because what ends up happening if you hit the debt limit, everything, everybody panics for two days. The bond market panics. Social security checks don't go out. That'll last about 48 hours before Congress runs back to the Capitol and and raises the debt limit and then tries to put out the fire, basically. At that point, the conservatives have blown up any credibility they have. They've practically started a recession. I don't think that situation moves the ball forward any more than anything else. And I don't have a good answer to your question of how do you force people to the table? I think you want some sort of default penalty default that brings people to the table where there's immediate consequences. But I think the debt limit is just the wrong one. Sure, sure. Well, so so let's back up and, and put this in a little more historical context. Could you talk about sort of the the politics of debt brinkmanship and how, how unusual is this kind of back and forth? It's well, I mean, like I said, in the 80s and 90s, yeah, we would we would attach, I mean, 
1990 Bush read my lips pledge was attached to the right. debt limits. The 1993 Clinton tax hikes were attached to the ta- attached to the debt limit. The 97 balanced budget deal was attached to the debt limit. Like this stuff used right. to be bipartisan. And so I would say, you know, the Democrats are the ones who are breaking precedent by not willing, by not being willing to sit down and address the problem. Right. When, so, and when, so when did they start not being willing to address the problem? When did it stop being bipartisan exactly? In the 2000s under Bush, okay. the Democrats started voting against every debt limit hike and oppose and not being willing to come to the table for any ideas either. And then the real blow up was 2011 when we nearly did hit the debt limit. We were days away and Congress came together to do the $2.1 trillion Budget Control Act, which was the discretionary spending caps that kind of lasted for a couple of years and then kind of got tossed away. Democrats came out of that process so angry about spending cuts being attached and the brinksmanship that the lesson they've learned is the hell with conservatives, we're never doing this again. My question for Democrats is, if you're going to constantly say the debt limit is the wrong time to address the deficit, fine. Then when is the right time? Right. Like there's never a right time. You know, I say, tell us the time and place and we'll be there. But they kind of give deficit hawks no choice because they put 70% of the budget on permanent autopilot that no one gets to vote for and then say, we're not going to sit down and negotiate a deal. Right. Conservatives in that situation are going to grasp for any legislative tool they have, albeit a poor one. So it seems like there's been a kind of mutual radicalization process where both sides get more and more dug in. But it also seems like it's really, at least in your telling, did start with the Democrats. I guess two, two, just two quick comments. One is this seems like kind of example of asymmetric polarization in the other direction where the Democrats got more extreme on something before the Republicans and the, yeah. the Democrats who abandoned a, a longstanding bipartisan norm. I guess my other question, this may be getting too much into the weeds, but just like, the, do you have a sense of why in the 2000s they suddenly started jettisoning these norms? Was it an evolution in their economic thinking? Was it due to a particularly acute hatred of George Bush? Like, what is it that prompted them to all of a sudden say to hell with it? Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think part of it is we ba- after we balanced the budget in 98, so to everybody's surprise, the budget was balanced from 98 to 01. When it first then went back into deficits in 2002, I think Democrats and, you know, and, and Republicans aren't blameless either. I mean, Republicans did, did a lot of tax cuts. Also, I'll say that the, the debt limit hikes under Trump included spending hikes and Demo- Republicans didn't even really pick up the baton for deficit reduction until a Democrat entered the White House. So there's a lot of blame to go around. But some of it was after balancing the budget for four years, Democrats just kind of relaxed on the issue and stopped focusing on it. A lot of it was just a lot of vitriol against Bush. I remember then Senator Barack Obama on the Senate floor saying that he was not going to raise the debt limit because the American people needed to see what George Bush had done to the national debt. And he didn't offer any deficit reduction proposal. Instead, he just said, I am, I'm going to refuse to raise the debt limit so we can all see the consequences of Bush. And, but again, I think that's that situation, but boys, there are a lot of blame to go around. And, and, you know, under Trump, Republicans were 
Republicans weren't trying to attach savings either. It was a bipartisan spending spree attached to the debt limit under Trump. Both parties have just been terrible on this issue. Let's sort of go out from the politics for a second and talk about the, the underlying factors. It's really easy to sort of like come up with scary numbers for the debt. Like I, oh, don't, I have I have so many of them. Yeah, like well, so so like I don't I don't have twenty trillion dollars in my pocket. I assume you don't have twenty trillion dollars in your pocket. But give us a sense of like what is just 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 sort of what is what is what is the scale of our debt in historical context and how should we think about it? What is you know should we think of debt to GDP ratio? Should we sure. be thinking about yeah like like what are better and worse ways to think about it? So I mean this is going to get a little nerdy and wonky, but the way economists measure debt is as a percentage of the GDP because the idea is that the bigger the GDP is, the more debt you can handle. Think of it like a family income. You know, is $100,000 in debt okay? Well, it depends if your income is $50,000 a year or $5 million a year. Same thing with the GDP. So the big spike was during World War II, the debt hit 106% of GDP. The debt was as big as the economy. Then it fell all the way to 20% of GDP by 1974. And it was pretty much stayed within the 20s to the 40s all the way through until the Great Recession. 20s to 40s was fine. Now it's spiked back up to 100% of GDP this year. And depending on interest rates, it could go to two to 250% of GDP over the next 30 years. So, I mean, this is almost unprecedented in the world, basically, to have the only even close parallel is Japan, and their economy has been a basket case for 30 years. Back of the, Let's do some back-of-the-envelope math. Let's say the debt gets to 200% of GDP and interest rates are 5%. That means that every year the interest would be 10% of GDP. 5% of 200% of GDP means that just the interest on the debt alone would be 10% of GDP. Now, historically, tax revenues are 17% of GDP. So what that means is that in a couple decades, you would need the majority of your tax dollars just to pay interest on the debt. That's the danger we're heading. And if interest rates rise to 6 7% of GDP, or 6 to 7% interest rates on a 200% of GDP debt, now you're looking at 75 cents of every dollar you send to Washington in taxes just paying interest on the debt. That's where the numbers really get scary mm. because it's just unsustainable. And presumably to, to Charles's earlier point about liking to spend money, if 75% of the tax dollars just have to go to interest payments, you simply won't have that much money that can be spent, right, on public services and other things that progressives and even some conservatives like. So, this, so presumably this would imperil in the long run the $12 billion that Charles wants to spend on policing. Everything. In fact, the funny, yeah. the funny, the funny history of the past 40 years, I did a big report in 2019 on the history of deficit reduction negotiations in Congress. And the funny thing is, whenever the deficit soars, usually due to entitlement spending, they respond by passing a budget deal that cuts discretionary spending. Discretionary is getting squeezed. That's defense. Um, you know, and all the domestic programs, a lot of the social spending, that's all declining as a share of the economy. Everything else is getting pushed out of the way for Social Security and health care. Ultimately, the national debt right now is about $25 trillion. That's the amount held by the public. 
Social Security and Medicare face a $116 trillion shortfall over the next 30 years. The choices are to either reform the programs or double middle-class taxes. That's it. Like, you can't, right. you can't tax the rich or zero out enough other programs to close a $116 trillion shortfall. You either have to double middle-class taxes or you have to fix Social Security and Medicare. But everything will be on the chopping block including police funding, everything. Because up until now, they've tried, whenever they have paid attention, they've done discretionary spending cuts. So so I, let's let's just dig into the into the entitlement growth a little bit. We're talking there primarily about Social Security and Medicaid, Medicaid and Medicare. Well, primarily so the Social Security and Medicare have the main shortfall. Okay. Medicaid is growing fast too. Yeah. So 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 talk about where that comes from. I mean, this is just like the boomers are aging into retirement. Yeah. I mean, oh, and, it, and you can't you can't change the funding structure. Right. I mean, what's happening right now is you have 74 million baby boomers retiring into Social Security and Medicare. On top of it, and also in Social Security and Medicare automatically get more generous every year too, not even just be inflation, but like even adjusted for inflation, 74 million boomers are retiring into a system that gets more generous each year. And on top of it, you also have health inflation driving up Medicare. So just to kind of understand this, the demographic side, in 1960, you, need, you had five workers paying the taxes for each retiree. That was the ratio of taxpayers to, to Social Security and Medicare recipients. It was five to one in 1960. It was three to one a decade ago, and it's going to be two to one by the next decade. That means every married couple is going to have to support their own Social Security and Medicare recipients. I mean, think of like every married couple, you have a mortgage, you have kids, you have daycare. You are now paying for the pension and health care of your own senior. Every married couple is going to have that. Somebody who lives to 90 is going to spend a third of their adult life collecting Social Security and Medicare. Like, you add that to rising health care costs and the fact that, like, Medic Medicare recipients get back triple what they pay into the system, it's it just not sustainable. Well, so, so, so I mean, I, there's, a, there's a number of directions we can go in. Uh, I want to ask a bit about the political obstacles to, to, to solving this. But before I do, I mean, there's this kind of argument you hear from the the modern monetary whatever people and, and others who, who just kind of say, look, like we've had this big debt deficit for a while and it's basically fine. And they basically are like, they basically would just say, no, the, the horrible predictions you have, they're not going to come to pass and we could just keep spending money and it will be fine. And how much do we really know about how the economy works anyway? Like, what's your response to the kind? No, I mean, I'm, I'm probably this is one articulation like, of the thesis. But like, I, no, I mean, there's a bit. I guess, I guess, the more rigorous articulation of it is: listen, economists who predicted doomsday scenarios over the debt and deficit have been wrong before. How certain can we be of the doomsday scenario you're articulating? And you know, can we really justify the short-term pain to seniors, given that they would argue, we don't really know actually what the consequences of the debt will be. I mean, well, I, I think I, that's I, the... I want to I, I ask you two variations on this, but you can answer that. Yeah, maybe you can refine it, Charles, but yeah, that's I, the well, basic I just, question. I would just say first that 
I don't think that we've been wrong before. I think the argument has always been the baby boomers are retiring between 2008 and 2030. By 2030, mm -hmm. all the boomers will be retired. That's when it's the 2030s, mm -hmm. 2020s, 2030s, 2040s that the costs go through the roof. The reason we were talking about this in 2000 is not because the debt crisis was going to happen in 2000, but because that was the time where we said, if you want to limit reform to people under the age of 50, if you want to grandfather out everybody over 50, you would have had to have done it in 2000. You could have phased in the reforms in 2000. It wasn't that the crisis was going to happen in 2000s as much as if you want if you want to give people time, that's when you got to do it. Well, we missed the window. Now you can't grandfather out people over the age of 50 or you'd be grandfathering out all the boomers. So it it was always going to happen in the sure. 20s, 20s, 30s, and 2040s. And if you look at the CBO baseline, we have a baseline deficit going to $3 trillion a year in the next decade. Like These are bonkers numbers. And I will just say the MMT answer is, well, let's just run the printing press. We'll just print $100 trillion over 30 years. You know, the idea that that's not going to cause hyperinflation strikes me as as, right. as as pretty crazy. Yeah, I mean, I think this, sure. I mean, I think the steel man of this would be to, not, it's not so much even about debt. It's just, you can look at like, say, particular predictions that were made about Obamacare, you know, say oh, yeah. within this horizon, you know, it'll cause premiums to rise by this much. And then people say, aha, it didn't have the disastrous consequence. I think, I think there's a tendency among, progressives to find concrete things conservatives said about the economy that were wrong and that to then kind of generalize and say and therefore we like there's no reason to take anything seriously they say about and that's death. fair and that's fair but i will say in the long-term budget numbers it's not just conservatives warning about this like yeah the original budget office is practically setting themselves on fire outside of congress every time they put out a report the social right. security and medicare trustees the gao economists on the left and right like this is a broad you yeah. know this isn't is just you know a couple of crazy right 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 throwing bombs right so like so like for this to not be a big deal like the entire mainstream economics profession including all the left would have to be wrong right I, the entire law like economics would have to be wrong i mean the idea right. that right we can promise 116 trillion dollars in higher cost than we're going to collecting taxes and that that's going to work out easily I, I, I'd like to see that. I, I hope, you know, I hope I'm wrong, but yeah. that would shock the entire econ and math professions. Right. right. So, 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 so let me, let me make two versions, sort of, I think two more, two more substantive versions of the same argument. One is the sort of explicit MMT take and the other one is, and I'll do this, the other one second, sort of the, the monetary dub take. The, the explicit MMT take really is the U.S. is a monetary sovereign the only constraint on our debt is inflation until recently <laughs> inflation was not that much of an issue and indeed i find persuasive the argument that inflation is less of an issue than it has been historically that relative to the 1970s inflation now is not that big of a deal doesn't that imply that there's a fair amount of debt that we could continue to take on before inflation became a serious a serious challenge i mean the MMT argument is, well, we can't, we don't have to default because we can always just print more money. Right. And yeah, we can, <laughs> but that would create its own problem. I mean, again, you're looking at $116 trillion in shortfalls over 30 years. Now, if you just look at the size of the money supply, 
you're looking at tripling, quadrupling the money. So, I mean, this is beyond anything we can imagine. The Federal Reserve during the, the pandemic increased its holding of treasury bonds from like $2 trillion to $5 trillion. And now they're trying to peel it back a little bit to $4 trillion. Asking the Fed to go up to $100 trillion is a whole nother ballgame. I mean, sure, if people want to argue, the Fed can probably take on a couple trillion over time. The, even the Congressional Budget Office assumes that the Federal Reserve, you know, over the next decade will take on one or two trillion more. But again, when you're talking $100 trillion, these numbers are so big. You're talking about tripling the money supply. The idea that that's not going to happen, that that's going to happen without inflation would fly in the face of every bit of economic history we've ever seen. So so here's the second argument, which I maybe find slightly more persuasive, is that mm -hmm. as we alluded to earlier, you usually think about debt to GDP ratio, which means you care about the debt, but you also care about GDP. Yeah. Um, which means, for example, to take something I think we agree on, deregulatory politics that increase productivity will improve the debt outlook. So why, I might ask if I were, you know, and I can I can name some monetary devs that we're friends with on the right, why shouldn't I be focusing more on increasing productivity, including government spending to increase productivity, than I should be on debt and deficit? Percent. Productivity is great. We need productivity. We need economic growth. When Social Security and Medicare are growing seven or eight percent per year, you can't grow faster than you're not going to you're not going to grow seven or eight percent a year in the economy in order to pay for Social Security and Medicare. It just doesn't work, especially when, you know, the, 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 the main aspects of growth are labor supply and productivity and labor supply growth is actually starting to decline. Baby boomers retiring, et cetera. So you would need even the, the increased economic growth, you know, a point, you basically would need to double productivity. And that just to get like one point of growth, that's really hard to do. Like you need to start getting like productivity rates to what we haven't seen since the 1950s when we were the, the, the only functional economy in the world, not cleaning out of World War II rubble. You're just not going to get that much. You're not going to get, you know, growth to anything close to what's going to pay for this. The other challenge with, with the growth argument is that while growth is great and to the extent it can nibble around the edges of the problem, it's a free lunch. But the more we grow, that automatically increases Social Security benefits because Social Security benefits are tied to wages, wage growth. So higher productivity means higher wages means higher Social Security spending. Higher productivity also leads to higher income, which leads to higher Medicare consumption. So about half of the growth you get, you actually give back in higher benefits anyway. I think growth has to be part of the agenda, but it's not just an easy lever we can pull to, 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 to grow at double or triple the rate or whatever. I, I think we should be as pro-growth as possible, but also be realistic. Yeah. So so one thing that, that's been hovering in the background of all this is a, a lot of European countries deal with such problems by just forcing the middle class to pay more in taxes. And, you know, you've said, well, but like Americans don't like that. I mean, I guess the question is, 
could Americans be convinced to accept the trade-off and just say, look, you know, let's move more towards a European social welfare model. That's fine. Like, what do you think are the prospects of that or, or the obstacles to it? I actually think that's what that's where we're going to end up, to be honest. Really? I think I don't think the American people are ready to actually make the reforms necessary on the spending side. I mean, there, if we started phasing in some common sense reforms on Social Security and Medicare, we could actually make the systems more efficient and we could exempt the poor. So we're just taking it from the top. But you see what happens politically when somebody actually mentions that, they get burned at the stake. So if you are going to do this on the tax side, you're going to have to tax like Europe does, which is primarily the middle class. In order to stabilize the debt at the current 100% of GDP long-term without cutting Social Security and Medicare, you would need to both raise the payroll tax from 15% to 24% and gradually phase in a 20% value-added tax over 20, over 30 years. These are over, over gradually over a couple decades. Bump up nine points to the payroll tax and do a 20% VAT. That's a pretty steep tax burden for the middle class. And ultimately, I think that's probably where we're going to be on a very gradual basis because you can't get there by taxing the rich. We're not willing to cut the programs. The difference between America and Europe, though, they have these huge wealth or these huge payroll taxes and value added taxes that finance benefits for working families. Family leave, childcare, huge safety net for families, paid vacation. We're going to be doubling everybody's taxes entirely for senior citizen benefits. None of it's going to actually go to working families. And Bernie Sanders just yesterday, it was in the Washington Post this morning, said that we need to raise taxes even further to expand Social Security. And I just think it's really interesting that of all the places progressives would want to put all these huge new taxes, they just keep doubling mm -hmm. down on seniors without actually doing anything for working families. It's an odd choice, but that's where we're going. I mean, I mean, I guess, you know, it sounds so irrational and Americans already have this, this cultural aversion to taxation that I think Europeans don't. I, I mean, how sure are you that we will be, you'll even be able to convince them to accept higher taxes? Because- I mean, yeah, but because we have no choice. I mean, here's the thing. Yeah. If you want to do it on the spending side, you got to do it sooner because let's say we, let's say the bond market in 15 years finally cuts us off. At that point, the baby boomers are going to be 80 years old. What are you, what are you going to do when the baby boomer, you're not going to cut, you're not going to start cutting off 80 year olds. And at that point, raising the retirement age ain't going to help you when all the baby boomers right. are 80. Doesn't matter if right. you're 67 or 69. So at that point, the boomers have already retired. The debt is so big that the interest costs are out of control. Benefits have been increased. At that point, the only option left is going to be taxes. And that's why I actually wonder if the left strategy is as much to wait it out as anything else. Because the, if we wait 10 or 15 years, the entire solution is going to be taxes. The, the window is going to close on benefit changes. So... I'd actually tell conservatives that I would rather take a not very great grand deal now with more taxes than I'm otherwise comfortable with than entitlement changes, mm -hmm. rather than wait 10 or 15 years when the only option on the table is going to be to tax the middle class to death because it'll be too late on the benefit side. So the 
I guess my other question is, all right, but you're pretty pessimistic about a, a grand deal happening in the in the near future. Yeah. So let's just say it does end up with with we, we just tax more like Europe. We, we we do all these taxes, but all we end up doing is paying for Social Security and Medicare and not for all these other working the boomer benefits. bailout bill. Yeah. I mean, so I guess my question is, what does that do to America's economic performance vis-a-vis -vis the world? Do we still remain a, an economic leader in certain respects or do we become indistinguishable from Europe in terms of our innovation and GDP and other and other metrics? Yeah, how, I, I how... Think, yeah, I think you'll probably see our economy look more like Europe. I think you'll have a little some you'll have less dynamism. You'll have less innovation. I think you'll probably have some sluggish growth. I mean, I still I'm not I'm not saying America's economy is going to become a basket case of the world or anything like that. But I think, you know, we always pride ourselves on how we're so much richer than Europe and our, our GDP is so much higher and how, you know, the poorest states in America are richer than the wealthiest states in Europe. That gap, I think, will start to close. And I mean, we still may stay above Europe. And, you know, I think we can still be the world's reserve currency in that situation as long as, you know, we're reigning in the deficit. But I just think the, the, the gap between America and Europe will shrink. Innovation, dynamism, I think we'll, we'll become a little more paralyzed. And that'll just become the new normal. Right. So so, so, so we should move towards closing thoughts a little bit, but I wonder if you, you know, it's a lot of doom and gloom, which is, of course, your job, but, but let's imagine that for some reason they started listening to you on Capitol Hill. How do you think about addressing the problem in the short run? Well, I mean, I mean, well, I mean, what I'm advising Congress is we're not going to, I'm advised, I talk to Republican lawmakers all day long. In the short term, we're not going to get Social Security and Medicare reform. So I'm kind of trying to get them to focus on other parts of the budget. But if they actually would listen to me on Social Security and Medicare, we can start phasing in reforms now that would be less drastic and could be phased in that could stabilize the debt. On Social Security, you can exempt the bottom half. You can start gradually raising the retirement age from 67 to 69 and start trimming benefits at the top. You might have to raise the payroll tax cap a little bit, not eliminate it, but raise it a little bit. On the Medicare side, policies such as moving more to a choice and competition model, premium support model where, where seniors can shop around for private plans if they want. CBO says that would both reduce costs by for seniors and the government by 7% without any reduction in benefits start looking for more efficiencies in the healthcare system and start reducing Medicare subsidies to the wealthiest seniors. If you start doing stuff like that, you can close about two thirds of the gap. And then you might have to do the other third of the gap with some modest tax changes. I would love to see Congress do that. Right now, there's absolutely zero interest. And every year we wait, the more aggressive the solution is going to have to be. I, I want to go back to Charles's, uh, Charles was alluding to kind of monetary doves that we're friends with on the right. And, you know, I'm thinking of people like Warren Cass or some of the folks at American Affairs, American Compass, and they're very interested in industrial policy as well as child tax credits and things of mm -hmm. that nature. 
Do you think there's any possible synthesis where we do some of that stuff and kind of give that section of the right some of what they want while also pursuing entitlement reforms of the sort you've outlined? Or do you really think that these two kind of impulses are just incompatible? I mean, I think if you want to do, if you want to do the more populist safety net policies, the kind of working class, child credit, family leave, then you can't do that if you're not going to touch Social Security and Medicare. And I mean, you're going to have to raise taxes so much. It's hard. It, it, it's not compatible with the child credit. So what I would tell my more populist friends on the right is if you want room for your priorities in the budget, you don't want Social Security and healthcare to swallow up everything, whether your priority is police funding, child credit, family leave, safety net, whatever. It's all in danger. As for regulatory industrial policy, we need a growing economy. Growth can't solve the problem, but sluggish growth makes the whole bigger. And so, I mean, it's, it's kind of a different episode topic mm -hmm. of whether or not industrial policy is better or worse for growth. But you have to be pro-growth and you have to rein in the entitlements if you want to have room sure. for anything else. Sure. Yeah, I mean, you know, I think, I, and and sorry, I, I, I do want to move to closing, but I want to, I just want to stick on this theme for a second. It does seem like ultimately what you're describing is a political problem, right? Like, and, and, and this is the classic way to describe the problem is an entrenched class of people who vote a lot, which say the elderly, they have entitlements regardless of their income status. There's sort of, you know, a relatively moderate position, which is that like you, you want to means test a little bit social security. And that would, that would put a big dent in the problem. Mm -hmm. And and through a combination of concern for this class and political inertia, you're not going to make those changes. So I guess I, you know, the, the the question on a political level is, is 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 there a way to route around that, you know, that that entrenched constituency and the inertia involved? Right? Like, this is the question of all political problems in the political system. But in this particular case, how do you think about routing around the entrenched constituency? What what doesn't make sense to me is. It makes sense that senior citizens are going to vote to protect Social Security and Medicare. I mean, this is politics 101. Of course, my mom and dad don't even like what I write about Social Security and Medicare. <laughs> but I haven't even convinced them. What I find interesting is that younger people and millennials and, and Gen Y are, are okay with this. Like, you're condemning yourselves to doubling your lifetime taxes in order to create the largest intergenerational wealth transfer in America, or sorry, in world history, to people older and in many cases wealthier than you. And I just wonder, like, what are young people thinking? Do they not realize that if you want to keep all these benefits for seniors and even expand them, as Bernie Sanders says, you can kiss goodbye all the new benefits that you imagine Bernie Sanders giving you and you're going to pay double double the income or double the income taxes. I'm I mean, I'm tr I'm seeing this as a, as 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 a political issue. It's a distributional issue where the people who are paying the cost are supporting it <laughs> as much as the people receiving the benefit. And I'm actually kind of baffled. I think the issue might be that younger people just haven't fully grasped that. Your taxes are going to go up this much. It's not just going to be Elon Musk paying these taxes. And no, you can't have all of your social benefits that Bernie's promising you too, because it's all going into Social Security and Medicare. I think there's this perception among young people 
that there's an infinite amount of of tax the rich revenues out there that there isn't. But you know, I I don't know how we're going to motivate people to focus on this absent the financial crisis. I would like to see young people look at this a little more self-interested than they are, but they're not. I mean, I I wonder what happens when the boomers die off if if that creates a, a space a kind of political space for reform or whether just young people and middle-aged people get so are already so inured to this system that the, the same dynamic just reproduces itself with kind of younger generations as they yeah, by that age they'll be getting older themselves and heading right. to retirement and their, their, their taxes will already have been doubled and, and maybe that'll be the status quo maybe I guess we should probably move to yeah. closing thoughts, so, so, Charles. So Aaron, Aaron, well, I was gonna, I was gonna ask you to go first because it seems like you've been radicalized over the course of the conversation. Yeah, I mean, look, Aaron's, I, Aaron's, I, just, Aaron's all in on getting rid of the boomers. Well, I'm not calling for eugenics of boomers. To be clear, I'm not doing that. Maybe some of, maybe some of our listeners believe in that, but not me. I just spout. No, but look, I, I will say this: it seems like it may just be that this is too much of a third rail. To, to do anything and we have to accept uh, our fate. And look, I don't I don't actually think it would be the end of the world, frankly, if we became more like Europe. I, I don't think that's like some intolerable, it's not, it's not, it's not true socialism. It's not the end of the world. You can live under it. You still have free markets. Like it wouldn't be horrible. That said, I do think there'd be a lot of cost to it. America does kind of subsidize the rest of the world. You, you know, if it did start to impact innovation, the long-term costs, right, of, say, less medical innovation are pretty big, you know, and I, I do think Tyler Cowen, for example, is, he's made this argument, but that, you know, from a just sort of utilitarian, time-neutral perspective, right, we should care a lot about medical innovation. It does make me think that everyone, there's there's this annoying argument that Matt Iglesias and, and other people will make where they're like, yeah, everyone's talking about the Santos on culture issues, but actually he's more conservative on like entitlements. And it honestly makes me think, well, maybe the, is not, I don't know if this will work, but maybe just DeSantis needs to run hard on cultural issues, get people really fired up and just tell them, yeah, 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 you know, this is all about like race stuff and trans, blah, blah, blah. And then like win with some big mandate and then use that to be like, and by the way, yes, we actually are going to like cut all of your benefits and just and and do kind of cultural bread and circus where we 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 get that through by just like fomenting the culture war getting people angry enough about whatever the stupid you know crt stuff is and just hope that they don't notice the old people don't notice when we cut their benefits so that we can allow future this is the case for like political 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 deception in order to have a more intergenerational really just economic regime i i don't know but like i i'm i'm not endorsing this but i'm not aaron, aaron completely unsympathetic to it what aaron has embraced popularism yeah ah, kind of like that's the conservative popularism so that we can get our debt stuff in order yeah you also like i like conservative popularism maybe not that it doesn't matter yeah no like uh, you know i i i watched the conversation i by brian's argument it helps that we work together but but you know I think I think I'm I'm persuaded by something Aaron said, which is this goes back to our, our episode with Garrett Jones, right? Like uh, something in America is too generous. It's a major driver of total global prosperity. Increasing total global prosperity is good, and so there are very large costs to sort of moving towards 
uh, a regime which more actively punishes innovation as a way to pay for long-term social benefits. Is it the worst thing in the world? No. Is it pretty bad? Yeah, it's pretty bad for like humanity. I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I, I do think we sort of retread a lot of classic ground here in the sense of there are – everyone sort of acknowledged tacitly this is a problem for a long time. We haven't resolved it. I'm not sure yeah. we resolve it. But maybe Brian's right. You know, clearly we're able to do at least nominal gestures at deficit reduction in the 80s and 90s. Maybe we return to the glory days of the 1990s, my favorite decade. I'm not optimistic. I do feel a little better knowing that the primary problem is entitlements rather than any social spending that I like. That's okay. I have, to, I, have, I have to pay for entitlements too out of my paycheck. Why don't we? Why don't we do some recommendations, Aaron? Do you have a recommendation for our listeners? Yeah, I don't remember the name of the episode. Actually, let me look it up real quick. But there's there's a really funny South Park episode on the debt that everyone should go watch. I mean, gr- uh, what Gray Dawn? Oh yeah, Margaritaville. That's what it's called. It's the 184th episode of South Park. Okay, I just looked it up on Wikipedia. It's great. It, I, I won't spoil it. But basically, it's it's it, it it came out shortly after the financial crisis in 2008, and it just is a really hilarious treatment of debt politics, and and also talks about the almost quasi. It, it kind of makes fun of the almost religious way in which people talk about the economy as this disembodied entity that almost has mental states and intentions and controls everyone's lives like some kind of hand of god it's it's a very good episode go go watch that south park's also just always a good recommendation but particularly that episode i'm gonna i'm gonna plug something off topic which is the book that i've been reading one of one of the books i've been juggling on and off when my child's not sick is david musto's the american disease which is the standard reference history of drug enforcement in the united states if you're interested in the topic like me I recommend it to readers who have not read it. It's great. It's great coverage. Brian, do you have recommendations for listeners from your own work from others, things they should check out? Oh, boy. Well, I mean, South Park. We can, I'll mention the South Park. There was an episode of South Park called Grey Dawn, which was a spoof of Red Dawn, except it was the seniors taking over <laughs> back back in the day. And their demand, their first demand was more money for Medicare. And they were able to succeed and take over the town because the regular moms and dads couldn't get up early enough to beat them because the seniors were all up at five in the morning and everyone else, and, and Dan's dad said we would fight back, but we like to sleep in. And ultimately they took over South Park. They imprisoned everybody else and demanded more money for Medicare. Okay, we found we found a great guest. Somebody agrees there at South Park. <laughs> South Park is an American classic, and everyone should watch it. And anyone who doesn't like it has no sense of humor. This yep. is this is no 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 Charles Charles Charles. <laughs> Do you not like South Park? What the I know I don't. It makes fun of it makes fun of all all the woke sacred cows. Right, but my, but but my political opinions are not built primarily on making woke people angry. But it's a nice. It's a nice side effect. That's fine. That's fine. All right. Why don't we say, I know Brian needs to go. So Brian, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you as always to our producers at Nebulous listeners. If you have questions, comments, concerns, treasury bonds, you'd like to send our way. You can always find us on Twitter. I'm at Charles F. Lehman. Aaron is at Aaron Sibarium. I think that's about all the time that we're giving to this episode. So until next time, I'm Charles Fain Lehman. I am Aaron Sperry. You've been listening to Institutionalized. We hope you'll join us again soon.